Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. 
As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Patrick, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you for having me. Yeah, uh, my pleasure. You know, you and I met through our mutual friend, Mike Del Ponte, who has referred uh, a number of really interesting people to me uh, when I had asked him for uh, people that, you know, I may not have heard of or haven't appeared on a thousand other podcasts. And, you know, when I looked at your story and your background, uh, I was immediately intrigued. So rather than give it away for our listeners, can you tell us uh, a bit about yourself, your background, your journey, and how that has led you to everything that you're up to now? Yeah, definitely. Um, so I, uh, I grew up in Fort Collins, Colorado. Um, I think that I kind of have a, a, that, that grounds me in sort of a Midwestern slash Western upbringing. Um, I went to school at a very conservative Baptist college, and, uh, but I think I always had my sights set on living in New York City. However, I didn't actually end up here in New York City until I was 30 because uh, in between the time that I was in school down in Florida and had moved back to Colorado for a couple of years and was a ski bum in Aspen, uh, I had moved out to Los Angeles for a couple of years uh, to pursue acting for a little while. And uh, at a certain point, I moved to Frankfurt, Germany, where I was pursuing uh, graphic design, which is what I studied in college for three years um, before I actually made my way to New York City. So I kind of had a combination of um, of travel, cultural education, uh, jobs within hospitality and restaurants and hotels, and the kind of like art and um, art and design uh, background to my career, as well as performance as well. And I sort of grew up in theater uh, in addition to having kind of pursued a, a career somewhat in Los Angeles as well. So um, I think that kind of my pursuits as I was growing up from kind of laid the groundwork for all of the things that I'm doing currently. Hmm. So um, just to give people some context, what is the, what is the work that you're currently doing? Uh, well, there's a lot, actually. Um, and I'm, I'm very fortunate to be in a place that I'm kind of pursuing all of the various endeavors that, that I've kind of always dreamed of. Um, to sum it up, uh, my kind of main platform is Instagram. A lot of people know me as at a guy named Patrick on Instagram, uh, where I showcase photos of my life in and around New York City and in travels abroad and around the country. Um, and a lot of the focus of the images that I showcase um, have to do with um, various uh, lifestyle pursuits, food, travel, fashion, culture. Um, and so I've developed an audience of, uh, of over 400,000 followers on Instagram. Uh, and in addition to that, I co-founded with my friend Amy Buchanan a group here in New York called Spring Street Social Society, in which we uh, we curate and host a series of uh, sort of one-night-only events that combine uh, cocktails, dinner, performance in various combinations. Uh, and we also have a, we have a series of about 200 members who um, 
who have our, our dues paying members who are, are the one, the guests who attend most of the events in addition to um, a, a number of tickets set aside for kind of the general public people that have found out about us. And one of the tenants that makes Spring Street Social Society so exciting um, other than just being uh, an opportunity for us to sort of play creatively with food, drink, performance, um, it really brings people together in New York City in a way that I think a lot of people are looking for community and we, we hopefully provide that for a lot of people. But what's really fun and exciting for us is that we, uh, we have this sort of um, secretive aspect to what we do and that people don't really know until a couple of weeks before the event that it's happening. And once uh, they've purchased tickets, they don't know until the day of the event where it's actually being held. Although we're pretty, we're pretty adamant that we like to stay in Manhattan because we believe that there's a lot of really wonderful things happening in other boroughs. And obviously Brooklyn has developed quite a name for itself, but mm -hmm. um, from the sort of idealist perspective of always wanting to live in New York city, Manhattan was what I always had my eyes set on. And uh, it's really our goal to kind of continue to uh, how I see it, uh, continue a legacy of artistic creativity within Manhattan. Mm -hmm. um, and in addition to spring street social society, um, I'm also uh, getting ready to launch an uh, an app and a website called The Liquor Cabinet, which is a company that I founded with my my two brothers, one who is based in Denver and the other who's in Minneapolis. And uh, the three of us started that company earlier this year, and we're hard at work on uh, the the development of the app specifically, which will launch at the end of November. And um, that whole project is really focused on creating a space for telling stories about spirits and cocktails and providing an, a, a resource where I don't really think there exists one for, for liquor and cocktails in a kind of in a culture where people are increasingly interested in their food and drink and the provenance of where those things come, comes from. There's not really a great resource to be talking about that with liquor specifically. Um, so I hope to provide that resource. Mm. So you've got this really sort of multi-hyphenate career that has really touched almost every aspect of, of the arts, it sounds like. And I'm curious what the early parts of your life, you know, childhood growing up, adolescence, uh, were like that would ultimately lead you down this sort of multi-hyphenate trajectory. Um, yeah, you know, I think that uh, from a young age, I was always very curious in, um, I, I had a lot of hobbies. Um, I think that, I think I probably owe a lot of my work ethic and the ability to take on a lot of things, uh, to my parents who, um, from a young age, uh, started a regimen of chores and task ma making for my brothers and myself. Um, and, and really kind of, uh, I think encouraged us to be independent and to kind of seek the things that we wanted to and we're very encouraging in that way. Um, some very kind of um, funny things I think that I could talk about that uh, in terms of my activities as a kid. Um, I performed in my first play when I was eight. I, uh, I was cast as Kurt in The Sound of Music at a local dinner theater called the Carousel Dinner Theater in Fort Collins. Uh, I had seen uh, I had seen listings for auditions in the local newspaper, I would actually, um, I would scan religiously the back of the entertainment section every Friday looking, I knew that, I knew that auditions were listed there and I was looking every week I would scour for auditions for kids, uh, 
I had never, I don't think I had even ever performed before, but I knew it was something that I would like to do. And when I finally found, when I finally came across auditions for The Sound of Music, I asked my mom to take me to the auditions. And I remember sitting in the car with my mom, um, not yet going into the audition and bawling my eyes out because I was so scared. But I had, I had dragged my mom to take me there. And so uh, she, with some help and encouragement, I finally got through the doors, auditioned, and then landed my first role. Um, it wasn't always so successful. I remember uh, auditioning for a children's chorus in Fort Collins uh, repeatedly, year after year, and never actually making it into uh, that elite group, um, that children's chorale. Um, but at the same time, I was pursuing things. I was, I was pretty actively involved in 4-H, uh, and while a lot of kids uh, in the community were doing things like, you know, raising cattle and sheep and kind of agricultural-related activities, I was focused more on kind of like hobbyist interests. So I, I was doing model rocketry for a little while. Um, I think I did one year of wood, woodworking, I believe. Uh, but then I was also doing much more uh, sort of like homemaking crafts. I studied cake decorating. I did study photography. Um, so from a young age, I think I, I think I was very interested kind of in the visual arts. Um, the cake decorating specifically was something that stuck with me uh, all throughout high school. And when I was 13, I actually had decorated my first wedding cake for a cousin. Wow. And uh, <laughs> that sort of turned into a, a side job throughout high school where, um, you know, friends and friends of friends would, uh, would uh, hire me to, to design and decorate their wedding cakes. And that actually, I think, led to me specifically to being uh, really interested in um, the media surrounding weddings. So I really was fascinated with the world of Martha Stewart weddings. So I actually credit... I, I credit the magazine, Martha Stewart Living and Martha Stewart Weddings, for like a lot of the kind of aspirational bent that I took when it comes to uh, when it comes to like entertaining, hosting. Um, uh, I think when it comes to like kind of style and design, mm -hmm. I think that I think that that publication was such a was was really a game changer in terms of um, being able to kind of focus editorially on kind of like across a lifestyle as opposed to being like really specific um, in one, um, you know, in one pursuit, such as just home decor or cooking or that sort of thing. Um, so I actually, I actually credit um, the, the Martha Stewart living um, the media company as a pretty large influence in my life. Um, while at the same time, and I can sit, I can, I continued, um, I continued doing, like cake decorating, I was cooking with my mom a lot. I was gardening, gardening with my mom, and then at the same time, I was very, I was quite academic. When I was sixteen, um, I uh, applied uh, for a position as a page in the House of Representatives in Washington D.C., and uh, and I got that position. So I left for my junior year of high school and lived in a dorm with other pages and served uh, on the House floor for for a whole school year. Um, and while politics was maybe something that was interesting and that, you know, I think it's generally fascinating and I was, I, I was curious as a learner, I think I was much more interested in just having an experience at 16 where I could get away from the house <laughs> <laughs> and uh, sort of live. I actually remember my brother was a, my brother was a page two years before I was. And mm -hmm. so that's, that's how I even knew about the program. Um, I had visited when he, uh, when he graduated and I remember being fascinated 
when we were, we as a family were there to see him at his graduation. And immediately after the graduation, he left with his friends to go, I, I don't know, go out to dinner somewhere. And that day I, I had remembered walking somewhere through Washington DC in some neighborhood and just being, um, being so excited by the idea of these, these wonderful little restaurants with their windows flung open and people dining on the streets and knowing that my brother at 16 was going off with his friends to like live that lifestyle. I was, I was jealous and I was like mesmerized. So more than anything, I think that I was kind of interested in getting away from the, from the house and developing my own sense of lifestyle and uh, kind of discovering that at a young age, sort of independently. Um, so I think that was, you know, living, living on sort of on my own with a group of 70 other uh, 16 year olds was I think a pretty um, a meaningful time for me and kind of a a turning point Um, and then yeah and I think throughout high school I increasingly became interested in in design graphic design uh, individual art so while I was continuing to do more theater uh, regional theater dinner theater I was also I I figured that um, better to study um, the graphic arts than theater when I went to college. Um, I actually didn't really drink. I, I didn't drink at all uh, growing up. I came from a very conservative Christian household, and I, for my part, was pretty, um, was sort of on board with all of the uh, the re- religious guidelines and, and moral guidelines that were, that I was taught. So I was a pretty good kid in terms of, you know, obeying the rules. Um, while, I, while I tend to kind of I tend to flout the rules that I think are unnecessary. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm a, I definitely am a risk taker. Um, I also, you know, am happy to play play within the bounds. Um, so I never I never drank growing up, and it wasn't until I was 21 that I really, you know, started drinking at all. And um, of course, to like, you know, to some extent, just enjoying nights out with friends and, and having my share of drunk nights. I actually was really becoming interested in, as I think. In high school, I was I was interested in food more and cooking at home. I became more interested in in drinking from a from a from a much more kind of like educated standpoint. Um, and it was when I was uh, a little bit older, like twenty, I'd say twenty five or twenty six, and I was uh, on a on a trip in the south of France, and I had had pastis for the first time, and it was a spirit that I had never tried before, and I first at first didn't really like it. I've never really been a huge fan of like an anise or licorice flavor, but um, over the course of like a couple weeks in the south of France, I grew to really enjoy uh, the taste of pastis. But more than that, I really began to understand how it was, um, it was really a part of the culture and uh, it, it was really specific to that place. And the story of, you know, sort of basically see the lifestyle of seeing, seeing old men drinking their pastis, playing petanque in the park and, and having that kind of, um, that regimen and, uh, of that drink kind of associated with that lifestyle, uh, I, I found really intriguing just the fact that there's so much that can be said about our cultures and about the history of our cultures and the way that we live that is so connected to, to the way that we drink. And that was really the first time that I, uh, I became really fascinated with spirits and I think was the seed that was planted in my mind that led me to, to form the liquor cabinet. So you know, these are really interesting and, and unusual pursuits, I think, for anybody, even at, you know, at a young age, uh, let alone a male. 
And I'm, I'm curious, you come from a creative family, like what kind of relationship do you have with your parents uh, that would, you know, shape and influence these activities? Uh, what relationship I have with my parents? Yeah, like are they are they creatives, artists? Like is that just something that was, you know, part of your upbringing? Because I mean, so much of this, I don't, like it doesn't seem like the standard sort of, you know, linear path upbringing that I'm, you know, being an Indian kid that I've been, you know, <clears throat> exposed to. Uh, yeah, definitely. I think that a large part of my creative pursuits come from uh, from my mother. Um, my mother has uh, a, a dedicated craft room in her basement, and I remember um, I remember driving away to my freshman year of college, and I like to joke that I I turned around, I drove myself down to Florida uh, my freshman year, and I remember uh, I remember uh, turning around as I was driving off to wave goodbye. And all I could see was my mother running back into the house to turn my room into her craft room, um, <laughs> which I, I don't think is too inaccurate or too far from the truth. Um, I shared a lot of, as I said, I like to cook with, uh, I like to cook with my mom growing up. And so I learned, uh, I learned at least how to follow recipes. Um, I also like to say that, uh, you know, my mom has always been really good at following recipes and is a, is a great cook. However, when I was, when I was, a little bit older and kind of enjoy starting to enjoy my own cooking in a way, in a more creative way. I was the one to kind of substitute here, things here or there, um, start to throw in extra ingredients and really think about how I wanted something to taste as opposed to just following a recipe. And that was always the hardest thing for my mom. So there was a point at which my mom sort of inspired me and, 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 and laid the groundwork. And then I was able to kind of use my creative, create creative expression, uh, beyond that. Um, you know, my dad was, uh, my dad was a big cyclist and I think the, the connection that I have with my dad has always been, um, a little bit of wanderlust. Um, and my dad's family in general, the Janelle side, um, I think we all kind of share, uh, that value, um, can't really sit still in one place. When I was 13, uh, my dad and mom were kind of tired of the big city. And I put that in quotes because I lived in Fort Collins, which was probably less than 200,000 people. Um, and they were ready to have a, have a quieter, slower life. Um, and we moved, my parents decided to uproot us. We were going to move. This is actually while I was in the middle of a production. Uh, so my, I was going to finish out this production while my mom stayed with me in Fort Collins and my dad and brothers were going to move, uh, to, uh, uh, it's a small town in Kansas called Lindsberg, the Swedish capital of Kansas, uh, and probably like, you know, 600 people. So it was definitely downsizing in terms of our community. And, uh, we moved there for a weekend <laughs> and at the end of the weekend, after we had had most of our things out there, uh, we, we had the down payment on the house. Uh, I wasn't privy to this conversation, but whatever transpired between my parents on a Sunday morning, uh, we, my brothers and I woke up. And my brother and my parents told us that we were we were all moving back to Colorado. Um, so I think that not to say that we're always so indecisive, but I think that there's definitely a, um, a sense within our family that um, that taking a risk is OK mm -hmm. and not always being sure of where that will lead uh, is also part of the part of the story. When when my uh, when I was 20, a bit older, when I was 27 uh, or 28, uh, so all of my brothers and I were out of the house. My parents actually uh, moved down to Columbia, South America for two years. And they, uh, my mom took a job as a teacher at an international school. My mom's a high school math teacher. Um, and, you know, we, we always, we had always stayed in the same hometown 
growing up with the exception of that one weekend in Kansas. But, <laughs> um, uh, but, you know, I think that there always has been a sense of adventure and also just sort of encouragement within that, um, yeah, with, within my family. So, uh, yeah, so all that to say, I actually have a wonderful relationship with my parents. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that there's always been, uh, there's been a strong support of any of the endeavors that I've taken upon. And I think that there's definitely been inspiration, uh, from my parents, but I, I think that too, um, I've always kind of pushed the limits on anything that has, uh, come my way through them. Mm. So I want to talk a little bit about the psychology of risk, um, and I have a lot of questions about this. But one of the other questions I want to ask you before we get there is what you learned about human behavior and communication uh, from your time you know, being exposed to politics as, as a page uh, that has made its way into your work later in your life and what you, you know, think might be useful for our listeners from that. Um, I'm sorry, specifically about... Well, what did you learn about human behavior and communication from your time working as a page? Um, you know, I think one of the things that really stuck with me the most, um, there were a group of us who were 16 years old. Um, we were there to provide a utility, ostensibly. I mean, this was in a time when uh, when cell phones hadn't quite made their way into, you know, mass culture. Pagers were were uh, the, the way in which people communicated mostly. But uh, we, as pages, were there to kind of, like, facilitate the moving of messages around and documents and um, retrieving uh, congressmen from the from the House floor when there was a vote and somebody from their office needed to get a hold of them. Um, I actually had to sit and mem- the first two weeks that I was in Washington D.C. I had to sit on the House floor and memorize. Uh, we had a little like guidebook of all of the the names and faces of the congressmen, so I had to be able to identify each one of them by name and uh, by face. Um, but we were there. We were there purely to provide you know sort of a service for for the congressmen. There was something though about um, the, the people that we actually really connected, the congressmen that we really respected and that we really connected to, um, were those who actually took the time to stop and say hello. And some who even, you know, maybe knew a couple of our names because, um, we worked specific jobs where they might have more interaction with us. Um, and I remember regardless of that person's politics, Mm -hmm. um, we had a very strong affinity for, those people who actually, uh, who actually decided to give, you know, a moment's notice to the people who were supporting them. Um, I think more than anything, that was what I took away. Um, and I, and maybe it's because I'm sort of sensitive to that myself in general and that, you know, I really believe in the value of, of people in general. And I believe, I honestly believe too, that, um, that we're, that you only are creating more, um, a more advantageous position for yourself as a leader um, by giving respect to those people who support you. Mm. Well, from this you know experience of going through all these auditions and uh, you know taking a shot and acting, what are the things you learned about grit and persistence from that experience? Well, um, you know it's interesting because I you know I I am I'm very persistent. I'm very, I have perseverance, but I, I also, the thing, I, I'm not sure if I learned this specifically from acting, but I think it really kind of like clarified something in the way that I work as a human. And that, you know, when, when you're putting yourself in auditions, uh, you're essentially putting yourself into this huge pool of people and not 
providing any opportunity for yourself to stand out. You know, the only way that you're going to stand out is if you're going to be exactly the right thing that the people in the room are already looking for. Um, so the thing that I found really frustrating about going to all of these auditions is that it wasn't really about uh, how good I was and it wasn't uh, the, the value that I knew that I had and the, um, the, um, the talent that I had, all of these things actually had, had like very little relevance to the actual pursuit of what was happening. Um, and I'm not really one to just sit and be, <laughs> be somebody in a, a, in a sea of people because I believe that I have a lot more to offer. So I think that, you know, a big part of me deciding that pursuing acting, at least in this way, was not something that I was interested in, had so much more to do with me not being willing to sort of like put myself uh, in the, at the level of, you know, hundreds, thousands of other people. Instead, how can I, how can I provide a platform for myself and essentially want people to come to me mm -hmm. as opposed to being the one um, essentially begging for begging for a role or for a job. Um, and, you know, I, you know, the reason that it, the reason that perseverance, I think, does pay off for a lot of people is that ultimately you just keep going and keep going and keep going until you are the right one that people are looking for. Um, but that's not really the way that I work. <laughs> so, um, you know, I still have acting ambitions. Uh, and I'm not exactly sure how those will kind of pan out, but, you know, in some, I think in actually a very, um, in a very straightforward way, um, me hosting events, uh, as a part of Spring Street Social Society and, uh, my pursuit of, of leading this sort of like cultural community, um, is in it, is in itself, you know, some type of performance mm -hmm. as is my work on Instagram. You know, I, I do believe that the best kind of performance is authentic. So I, I don't by any means. Um, mean to say that it's it's disingenuous, but um, the the times when I, f I I feel like if I can blaze my own trail, I can make my own sort of stage for myself and my own platform to speak from, and do that in a way that I know is very compelling uh, and and really comes from myself. That to me is is just as much uh, that's that's much more valuable uh, in terms of this pursuit of creativity than. Uh, than going into an, a room to audition for a role. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. 
Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Well, let's talk about risk a little bit. Uh, one of the things that you said is that risk was something that was encouraged uh, when you were growing up. And I don't entirely think that's normal. Uh, maybe it's partially because of the upbringing I've had. But I, but I also, you know, I've had hundreds of conversations with people about this. And the question I have uh, about risk is whether you think it's something that can be learned, the capacity to take risks and to keep leveling up and taking bigger and bigger risks. Or you think there's something just just inherently built into some people that gives them that ability um you know i think yeah i think it's definitely a combination of learned behavior and uh and behavior that that you can that you can that is, exists naturally um i remember I, you know there's 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 a strong connection between risk and fear right mm-hmm. um so I guess I've never really, I've never really thought of anything as taking a risk. Um, I've seen things as being scary, and I've I've seen things as sort of like facing fear, um, but that has never really been that's never really equated to me as like risk taking. I only I only know that it's risk taking because that's what everybody else tells me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I remember uh, a story. I don't know if I remember this because I experienced it or because my parents told it to me. I must have probably been five or six, but I remember, I, I feel like I remember watching my parents drive away. Uh, I was in a cul-de-sac in Fort Collins. Uh, I was five or six. My parents had told me that I needed to get in the car or they were leaving without me. And I didn't get in the car. I didn't want to go. And I remember watching them drive away and sitting there and probably being uh, angry, but also feeling very self-righteous. <laughs> um, and at a certain point, my parents came back and they had to come back to get me. They weren't going to leave me. Um, so I think that that happened when I was very young. Uh, and, 
and therefore was probably something that uh, a quality that existed inside me and that was not learned. Um, but what's interesting is that uh, maybe my parents didn't necessarily encourage encourage that behavior, but they also really they accepted me knowing that I was a stubborn stubborn child, uh, probably shaping me in certain ways, but also understanding that um, at certain times I was going to do what, what I was going to do. And they had to learn how to kind of like, I guess, work within that framework. Um, I, I, that, that's part of the reason when, you know, when I was 20, 19, 18 and I went to college for the first time, I wanted to, I wanted to drive down to school alone by myself. And it was never even a discussion. I don't think that my parents even necessarily wanted to. Uh, but by that time, I think my parents realized that I was willing to, you know, kind of like make make my own rules, mm-hmm. and uh, and they and they were okay with that. So I think that there was certainly uh, there certainly has never been any any pushback in terms of uh, you know my parents feeling like something needed to happen a certain way just because. Um, I think that there's also a, there's also a strong amount of uh, of logic that uh, that allows me to kind of, um, I guess, take certain risks or um, to do something that otherwise might be might be scary. Um, I, I don't know that my logic is always is always actually correct, um, but I think that in 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 a lot of cases, um, let's say for instance, moving to New York City and not having a job, um, my logic is, well, what's I mean, what is my what is my choice? Or what are the options? There's certainly not an option that I would not find a place to live, that I wouldn't find a job. And, you know, worst case scenario, those things didn't happen. I'm sure that I could move back to Colorado and move in with my parents. But ultimately, the risk is that the risk is that I that that I don't ever have the experience that I want. Whereas the and the actual the, the risk is not actually that I won't find a job or that I won't find a place because I actually don't really see that as a as a possibility. So that's kind of my maybe like slightly skewed logic, um, but uh, but yeah, I think that it comes down to allowing allowing um, you know a very a very open type of logic to kind of like dictate what is what is risky and what is not. Well, let's do this. Let's shift gears a little bit. Um, and let's let's actually start talking about you know sort of the the creative work that you've done. Uh, like I said, I mean you've had your hands in so many different things, and I've asked this question in some form or another to a handful of people. Uh, I'm curious, you know, how each art form has influenced and shaped uh, the work that you've done in the others. Like, you know, what did acting teach you about photography? What did cake decorating teach you about acting? Uh, you know, given that you have this sort of multi-hyphenate body of work, it, it's not just, you know, one question, but, you know, what did each of these art forms uh, teach you about the others? Um, yeah, I don't know that I, I don't know that I have any maybe real specifics. Um, I'll try to think of if I do. Um, but I think ultimately uh, the way that I approach any project that I work on now is that whatever is kind of like the the typical uh, approach, the, the typical list of things that need to happen in order for something to be executed. Uh, I'm not really willing to, to stop there because I understand that, I, w- I guess I try to be very comprehensive in the way that I look a proje- at a project. And maybe I'm not always the, the best person to, to let's say, um, if it's a Spring Street Social Society project, not always the best person to, to perform, 
to uh, design the menu, to style the space, to cook the food. But I also understand, like, I, I have a very strong interest in all of those things. And so really what it comes down to is that the details matter. Mm-hmm. And so I'm really interested in having, having had, you know, a pretty, um, pretty extensive amount of experience in, in a variety of things. Um, it just gives me, I guess, more of an education to kind of understand how the details from the things that I don't necessarily even understand fully um, are very important. And if I don't understand them fully, or maybe I don't have the bandwidth to, uh, to, you know, to sort of like take on that aspect of a project that I, that I'm, uh, that I have, that there is somebody who is there. Um, another way to think of that is, you know, I love, I love the theater in, and I love, I love theater in general. Uh, but one of the things that I find kind of so sad about going to the theater in New York city is so often, um, the experience itself is so lacking theatricality. You know, we, we're, we're kind of in this place where going to dinner at a restaurant is such a theatrical experience from the design of the place to the way that the food is prepared to the, you know, the chef kind of as that personality behind the food. Um, there's so much, you know, hospitality has really become a theatrical experience, whereas theater is, you know, want lacking in hospitality <laughs> and they're, therefore lacking in, in much theater outside of what's happening on stage. Uh-huh. Um, Spring Street Social Society is actually um, producing its first play in a month at the beginning of November. Um, and uh, it's, of, it's of our interest, too, to think of, like, how can we bring these things uh, that we do so well in the world of hospitality mm-hmm. into this more traditional framework of presenting a play, a theater, uh, and how can we kind of like bring all of these worlds together? So even though cake decorating maybe enters nowhere into these things, you know, for a long time, I obsessed over the details of how to, um, how to ice a cake and make, you know, make the, uh, make the frosting appear smooth or how to, how to shape a flower, mm-hmm. the colors that went into something that, you know, I was thinking very specifically and visually about this. Um, so there's no way that I can then step back into another project, um, and just just thinking that having you know accomplishing a play on a stage is enough. Like, what are what are those intricate details that make this a really special experience? I think you and I share that in common. You know, we you know for some people listening, they know we put on a live event, a uh, conference, and my entire approach to that conference was theatrical performances and movies and music are far more entertaining than conferences, so we should treat it as if we're putting on one of those events, and we'll blend the conference content in underneath all the theatrics. Would you say that the, this sort of theatricality is is sort of a a defining ethos of all the work that you do? Like, does it, is it a thread that runs through everything that you work on? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think that in the sense that I do, I do think that there's, you know, there's a certain level of performance, uh, because I'm, I'm very interested in how, and how you can sort of like present a body of work and hide all of the, you know, the backstitching mm-hmm. that, that is present. Um, I think, I think the more that you can kind of create almost that fourth wall of, of this world exists and we're not even going to talk about, you know, the part that, that makes it work. Um, that is how I see performance as, as actually working really well. And that's not to say that I, um, I, I, that has nothing to do with communication. Um, or being, or being able to like health, healthily communicate with somebody. I think this is, you know, very specifically about the, the sort of like creative endeavors that I'm involved with. I think it's very important to talk about the things that aren't working, mm-hmm. um, but with the people who are relevant. 
Um, so the more that you can do to provide this sort of like seamless, beautiful experience in which everything seems, you know, sort of like perfectly executed, I definitely see that as, as a form of performance in theater. Well, let's talk about photography for a little bit. Um, you know, I have a lot of questions out of morbid curiosity. I mean, when you look through the lens to create a story or to, to capture a moment, what do you look for and how do you bring something like that to life? Like, what is your creative process? Um, well, let me say uh, first, uh, the, the metaphor of the lens is funny or maybe the actual um, uh, referencing of the lens is funny because I don't actually have a lens to speak <laughs> of. Um, I use my iPhone to shoot all of my all of my photography. Uh-huh. Uh, I, I actually don't really consider myself a photographer in as much as I don't actually own, you know, a, a DSLR. Um, and I don't in as much as a lot of my work that I do for clients comes through Instagram. Uh, I see it as much more of a kind of, uh, yeah, this, the way that the, the value of what I'm doing is actually reaching an audience and the story that I'm telling through a beautiful image, mm-hmm. but the actual, you know, the actual piece of imagery in itself is not as valuable as kind of like the whole world in which it's, it's, um, it's created and showcased. Uh, that's a minor distinction also because I don't ever book gigs just as a photographer. Um, but that's to say, uh, I, I do have very, you know, very, uh, thoughtful viewpoint on, or a very specific viewpoint on, on what I'm creating. And, and also I think to the point of where, where these images are showcased is actually part of what I, how I approach taking photos and, and capturing images. Um, when I was, when I was 21, 22, 23, I think actually, uh, I had left school in Florida and I was, uh, moving to California, uh, to pursue acting. I had actually, I had bought a Vespa, a new two grand, uh, a 250 CC engine Vespa, uh, got my motorcycle license because it was big enough, uh, to need a motorcycle license. And I drove the Vespa cross country. So that's actually how I moved from Florida to Los Angeles. Um, and I remember, uh, I, I kind of started a blog at the time because I, I loved the kind of like visual nature of what I, I was doing. Again, I felt of, I felt it was some sort of, you know, performance and then I'm, you know, driving this little vehicle cross country and, you know, most people's reaction is, well, that's crazy. How long did it take you? Um, I know that those questions are coming and I, and that's why I'm, you know, sort of like creating this experience. I wanted to have, um, a way to showcase these sort of like vignettes as I saw them where I'm driving across my scooter across Texas in the middle of the desert. And like, what does that scene look like? And capturing that in a way that not only am I having that experience, but I can like take this image that, um, that is able to communicate that experience and resonate with an audience who wasn't actually there. Um, and I want, I actually wanted to be able to do that and connect that to, uh, connect that to maybe a timeline and a map. Um, and this is before Instagram existed, but I think I really just wanted Instagram. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think I was very well, well set up when Instagram was actually, you know, a thing to start documenting, documenting moments is really how I see my, my photography skills is what is a moment that can be expressed in just an image that gives the viewer just as much of an emotional connection as if they had been there themselves. And sometimes the thing that you have in person, there's, there's other triggers that actually give you that connection. So it's actually finding what's the vantage point and what is actually within 
that frame that uh, both the you know the layout of the image, the um, the composition, the coloring, uh, all of these things, the styling maybe. Um, what are those things that need to be present in order to to kind of like create that same emotional connection? It's interesting. Like <clears throat> as I was listening to you tell this story, it sounds like performance really and cultivating experiences for an audience is really the underlying thread um, that seems to tie your entire body of work together. Yeah, I would agree with that. So one question about that: How do people start to bring that into their own work? Hmm. Well, I mean, I guess the question is, uh, is it necessary for everybody to? Yeah. Um, you know, I think, um, I think if, but if you do, if you do want to, I think it's really a matter of, of being able to understand. I mean, you have to come at it from the audience perspective, right? right? It's like, what does the audience actually want? If you're talking in very, you know, kind of dry marketing terms, like who is your audience? Mm-hmm. Who are you talking to? What's your demographic? What do they want? Um, and whereas I think that there's, you know, there can be on the one hand a, cer- a certain level of taste and uh, maybe even experience that it, that allows one one person as a creator to kind of communicate that. Um, I think that there's there's a large amount of trial and error as well. Um, I when I, I give workshops on uh, Instagram and social media um, and mobile photography. Um, and one of the points that I like to make is that every medium, um, you know, is a different, is a different platform with different rules, just, just in the same way that an image, maybe a, a, an image, uh, hung on a wall at a home or in a gallery is different than an image that's printed in a magazine. Mm-hmm. That's different than an image that you'll find on Instagram that's different than an image on, on Twitter or even Pinterest for that matter. Uh, so really understanding like what is the platform with which you're communicating and how do you connect with an audience? Um, so it's as much, it's much about as understanding the audience is as what is that platform that you're using? Um, I think also, um, there's, I, I certainly, you know, I, I've had this really great run for the last like three or four years since I moved to New York City. But, uh, you know, I spent most of my 20s, um, I mean, certainly living in more obscurity than I am now mm-hmm. and having many, many creative pursuits that honestly, you know, at least in, in that short term didn't really seem like they were going going anywhere. I left Los Angeles and all that I had under my belt was a couple of student films and uh a role as a, as an extra in Pirates of the Caribbean, which was pretty fun, but, um, not, you know, there were no credits associated with that. Um, I, I moved to Germany and, uh, while I learned a little bit of German and I can, you know, order a meal at a restaurant in German, I, I had some jobs as a graphic designer. I had, I, I joined a local English speaking community theater, uh, but I didn't leave Germany with any sort of newfound, um, edge or, you know, sort of, uh, creative oeuvre of any type. Um, while those things definitely were learning opportunities and experiences that, that allowed me to be where I am at now, I think that there was also one, I think that the medium of Instagram has really resonated with me in a way that nothing else really has. It's come before. Um, and I think that also, you know, I, like I said, I, I started blogging at a certain point and I've had a, a couple of different blogs. And when I was in Germany, I had friends who were developing these really great 
uh, creative communities through Twitter and on Flickr. A lot of my friends from art school uh, were using Flickr as a way to kind of like uh, create a, a visibility for themselves and artists and even start to sell their artwork and all of these things. Um, and that was just something that never really took off for me as much or as little as I tried. Um, so I think that there's that all that to say uh, it's both the level with which you create and execute, but it's also, you know, there's also a certain amount of just sort of timing and also learning and understanding that, um, that certain things that don't actually take hold, um, either are either because it's maybe just not the right way for you to work, uh, or maybe it's, maybe you haven't learned as much as you need to learn. Well, this has been really, really interesting. Uh, I like conversations like this because they, give you a lot to think about. They're not necessarily a map, but more of a compass, which I've, I've said a thousand times. Uh, so I'm going to finish with one last question, which is how we finish all our interviews. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Um, you know, I think it's really, uh, it's, it's honesty, integrity, um, and uh, courage and self-confidence. I think the moment that that somebody is willing to kind of own everything about themselves mm -hmm. um, and willing to, to really sort of like be on, honest and authentic and therefore not sort of apologizing for themselves. I, I think that, um, and so, yeah, I'm talking about people here, maybe more than a project or, yeah. you know, a product or a thing, uh, which is ultimately what I care about. I think is I care about, uh, the person, which I think is also to say to care about the experience, because ultimately, ultimately a product is only as good as the experience that provides, which is only as good as the, that sort of like interaction that you have as a human. So I will say, uh, bringing it back down to the human level, honesty and integrity. Well, Patrick, this has been really great. And, uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to join us and share your story and your insights with our listeners. Yeah, well, thank you for listening. I, I, uh, I, I appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Yeah, and for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Wednesday on The Unmistakable Creative. Empathy is an understanding of feelings and needs. That's it. Feelings and needs. Feelings are all of the emotions that we as humans experience. I'm scared, I'm tired, I'm nervous, I'm concerned, I'm confused, I'm resentful, I'm excited, I'm happy, etc. We know those feelings. Sometimes we don't recognize that we're feeling them or we don't give, you know, voice to those feelings. There are studies that show that we experience upwards of 60 emotions on a daily basis. So we are emotional beings. And what is happening as we experience these emotions is that they are giving us clues to our unmet needs. Tune in for my conversation with Whitney Hess about how to design a more self-aware life. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. 
Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that, and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.